As we stand, let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that in the heat you would help us to stay awake. I pray that you would uh, give us clear thinking and help us to engage with what you may have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes us happy? That was the title of uh, a magazine article in Atlantic Magazine two years ago. And it is a fascinating article describing a most extensive project in the study of human behavior. Um, it, It started almost 80 years ago with 268 men who entered Harvard in the late 1930s. And the idea was to take a group of people from a privileged uh, group like Harvard and find out what makes a person thrive over a whole lifetime. And many of those Harvard men did very well. One became president of the United States. Uh, Many became leaders in medicine, in education, in business. Others did not fare so well. Some committed suicide. Some became alcoholics. By age 50, almost a third had some episode with mental illness. The research is still going on and will continue until the last Harvard man of that cohort dies. But along the way, all kinds of observations have been made about what makes people happy. But one thing stood out from all the rest. The study's longtime director, George Valiant, commenting on what he'd learned, said this. The only thing that really matters in life is your relationships to other people. That's what he observed. And of course, relationships are at the very heart of our Christian faith. Nothing is more important than your relationship with God and your relationships with others. Jesus, of course, knew that. And he also knew and fully understood that life is messy especially when it comes to relationships. And it's concerning that messiness, particularly regarding relationships within the church, that we encounter Jesus giving some very practical instructions to his disciples in our gospel passage today. Jesus knows that in the Christian community there's going to be trouble. People are people the world over and through time. People hurt people. And hurting people tend to hurt people even more. What is clear as we work through this teaching is that undoing the hurts and consequences of sin in our relationships with one another is hard work. Jesus' teaching is not a shortcut to success, nor does he offer an easy formula for reconciliation. But he does give us a number of steps that we can take. So, suppose someone here sins against you. They speak ill of you, they hurt you, they wrong you. Here's what you should do. First, you go and speak to the offender. What? Surely that can't be right. If, if I'm the innocent party, it's hardly my job to be going to make the first move. I mean, sure, I can be ready to forgive when they're ready to say sorry. But it's going to take that kind of transaction, isn't it? And then when they come to me for forgiveness, I can forgive them and we can all move on and that'll be great. 
Actually, I like that approach. I, I really do. I, I prefer it to what Jesus says. Uh, it fits in with my very keen sense of justice and fairness, especially if it involves me. But I have to tell you, what I may like or prefer is not the point, which is a good thing. Jesus is very clear. If you have been sinned against, sinned against, you, the innocent one, the victim, the, the one who's had something done to you, you are the one to make the first move. Oh, and by the way, says Jesus, if that doesn't work, guess what? You stick at it, and you go to them again, and this time you, you take someone with you. Talk about hard teaching. Who wants to mess with that kind of mess? Who wants to stay in a troubled relationship like that for very long? And maybe you think in our context, well, you know, we're a fairly big church. I'll just avoid that person. And hey, if we start a new service in the new year, it'll be even easier. I'll just make sure I go to the service that they don't go to. Well, you could do that. But you'd be in the wrong Our faith is personal, yes, it is, but it's also plural, it's corporate. In the family of God, we're stuck with each other. Get used to it. Today's passage comes on the heels of the disciples asking Jesus, who will be the greatest? They they seem to think that being a disciple is some sort of internship with Jesus until they'll be in charge, sitting in their corner offices and calling the shots. Well, guess what? Discipleship, following Jesus, is a bit harder than that. It's time to wake up and smell the church coffee. But what a relief it is that when we meet together in Jesus' name as we are here, he is with us. He is here when we gather to worship him, and he is here even when we quarrel and hurt one another. You know, for years, I think I've been misquoting this verse at the end of our reading about where two or three are gathered in his name. You know, I've used it sometimes on a Wednesday morning in the dead of winter, when there have only been two or three worshippers. Uh, but that's completely out of context. The context is not to encourage clergy or parishioners when only a handful of people show up for a service or a meeting. The context is this backdrop of how to fight fair, how to get real with one another, how to restore relationships that are broken. When we get together with one or two others in order to be serious about reconciliation and restoration. When we get together with one or two others and we're willing to confront sin, then Jesus tells us he is there in the midst of us. And that's a good thing. You know, the mark of a true biblical community is not the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of the will to be reconciled. Can I say that again? The mark of a true biblical community is not the absence of conflict, but rather the presence of the will to be reconciled. And, of course, the presence of Jesus, our great reconciler. I wonder, are you committed to reconciliation? The truth is we're a mixed bag of people, and we all have baggage. We're all works in progress. Actually, it's kind of remarkable that we're all here together at all, given the vast differences that there are among us. 
So if, or perhaps I should say when, you encounter or are caught up in disagreements and problems in the church, it's worth remembering that's normal. It is actually to be expected. Now, that said, it's not okay. Sin is not okay. Sin is never okay. Neither is it okay to do nothing about it and just go to another service. Sometimes we get it right. And certainly in this place we have seen broken or strained relationships among us marvelously restored as folks have done precisely what Jesus tells us we should do. But sadly, it is very easy to get it wrong, refusing to do what Jesus tells us to do. I think Christians are often not terribly good at dealing with conflict, either because they have a rather romantic notion that we shouldn't have any disagreements with each other or that nobody's going to sin, both of which are utterly ridiculous ideas. Or because we feel that if someone hurts us, then we should just be stoic about it. We should just turn the other cheek. Well, Jesus did teach us to turn the other cheek, but not in this context. When he taught that, the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking about what to do when an unbeliever, an outsider, takes advantage and insults and and strikes you. Then you don't fight back. Yes. But here, Jesus is talking to the disciples about what to do in the church. And in essence, the challenge is for us to get real with each other and pursue ways that lead to reconciliation. The, the, uh, the capacity, it seems, that we have to ignore this is huge. And so what people often do first when someone sins against them is nothing except to bottle it up and stew over it. And they get bitter or angry and then they tell their friends. And of course, soon the resentment grows and the whole thing escalates. And then a relationship is broken and remains broken. Or, or a person flies off the handle for something totally unrelated. Or in the worst case scenario, the offended person slinks off and disappears and we never see them again. Jesus lays out a very different approach. Jesus said, if another member of the church sins against you, and let me pause there for a second, a reminder Jesus is talking about sin. He's not talking about someone you might find a bit annoying or who's different from you. These are instructions for how to deal with someone who sins against you. And and deal with it is what Jesus expects us to do. He doesn't say, well, don't take offense. He doesn't say, well, just overlook it. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. He actually says it's time to step up here and confront the person who's in sin. And confrontation, I would imagine, is a fairly scary word for most people. Not everybody. Some people are good at it. Um, But, you know, confrontation sounds adversarial. It sounds judgmental. It sounds harsh or angry. And, of course, it can be all of those, but it need not be any of those things. And actually, the kind of confrontation that Jesus is talking about is a mark of real love and respect when we, those who've been sinned against, are willing to make ourselves vulnerable vulnerable enough to go to someone and point out a sin. The teach, this teaching is hard. You know, if you were thinking first day back in the, uh, you know, kickoff is going to be easy, no, sorry. 
Because in putting the onus on the one sinned against to make the first move, we're not afforded the luxury of waiting for the offender to come to us and apologize. Jesus says, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault. Sin is to be confronted, not ignored. And there are two important things to note about this. First of all, the goal of this confrontation, remember this always, is to restore relationship. It is not to judge them or condemn them or give them a piece of your mind, no matter how much you might want to do all of those things. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. That's the goal. That's the purpose of the meeting. That's what you're to pray uh, to be the outcome. And secondly, you are to go and point out the fault when the two of you are, says Jesus, alone. Jesus does not say, phone a friend, uh, bring it up as a prayer request in your small group, or complain to one of the clergy. None of those options are offered. Now, I know that that's hard to do. I find it very hard. It doesn't come naturally. When someone sins against me, my natural inclination is to tell somebody else, in confidence of course, uh, to bolster my sense of righteous indignation. And if someone does come to you like that, to bolster their righteous indignation... The best thing you can do is, gently but straightforwardly, ask him or her, have you talked to that other person? Very often you will find they have not. But what if going to see the person who's wronged you doesn't resolve it? Well then, you'll proceed to the next stage. Jesus uh, says in verse 16, if you're not listened to, take one or two others with you. I mean, of course this is the case. It's Jesus' teaching, but... That is so wise. I mean, because often others can see things that we can't because we get tunnel vision because we've been hurt and we've been sinned against. So it's a very good idea to get some others to come along. And they might be able to ask some helpful questions. They can be dispassionate. They can pray. They can make a real difference. And involving others is a very good way for us to have a reality check for ourselves. After all, how much might we be a part of the problem? And as Jesus says, very practically, it's a good idea to have some people there who can be witnesses to what is actually said. Again, remember, the goal of this is the same. It's restoration, not proving how right you are and how wrong they are. And if that doesn't work either, well, then verse 17, the third level of confrontation involves bringing the matter before the wider church. Now, in our context, that might be the church leadership. Or if it involves the church leadership, then maybe the bishop. But still, the goal is to enable the person to listen and see uh, what the error of their ways has been. So that they may be restored and reconciled. And if that doesn't work, well, finally... The person in the wrong is treated as an outsider. And in the church context, that doesn't usually mean we ban them from attending Sunday worship. Though in certain extreme cases of sin against others in the church, it could. In 20 years of ministry, I can think of just two occasions when that has been necessary. But more likely, it could mean that we would need to ask someone to step aside from leadership or, or something like that. And in very rare occasions, 
it might mean that someone would be asked not to take communion. Again, the purpose, and that's a drastic step, but the purpose is to bring this one back. Unacknowledged or unrepentant sin is a very serious thing and it's a very damaging thing. But in all of this, there is throughout this appeal to the offender to listen and to do what's right. And and from the Old Testament, do you remember the charge to the sentinels? If you see the sword coming, you see this danger and you don't do anything about it, then the judgment comes on you. This is our duty, brothers and sisters, to engage with this difficult stuff. But even at the end of the line, as we've worked through it all, even if they are to become, as it says in verse 17, as a Gentile or tax collector, that is one outside the community, remember it was for such as these that the church was created. Always we want to have that door open. Now, of course, in most most cases, the breaches in our relationships with one another don't reach the point of the whole church being involved. So I want to say a couple of other things briefly about how we can go about seeking to resolve conflicts when they come up. And this is true principally within the church, but these, these things apply at home or at work or wherever you are. The Bible gives us many practical instructions in addition to those that we've looked at this morning from Jesus, as well as making the first move, going in private to the person who's wronged us, we should heed the words of the Apostle James. He says we need to be ready to listen before speaking. To listen before speaking. I think that's a lifelong lesson. In James uh, 1 verse 19 we read, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Another important thing we should heed is to make sure that we always and only speak the truth in love. Paul writes in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I think sometimes we're good at either A or B, either speaking the truth or we're reasonably good at the love part. But try doing both. That's the challenge. That's what we're called to. And of course, speaking the truth in love also means speaking the truth about our own part in any breakdown of relationship and taking responsibility for that. Because it's almost, almost never all their fault. It is so important that we have a reconciling spirit. Our attitude needs to be one of humility, one that is filled with grace and that acknowledges just how much that other person, that sinning person, that hurtful person, to remember how much they matter to God. We need to go with an understanding that broken relationships matter and relationships between Christians should not ever be disposable. We need to go ready to do whatever might be needed on our part, ready to forgive, ready to ask for forgiveness. Now, having said all of that, I recognize that there are some broken relationships that for various reasons, it might be inappropriate or impossible to seek 
reconciliation face to face. It might not be safe. But don't use that as an excuse. But it might genuinely not be. So okay, I acknowledge that. And in some cases, it's literally impossible. At its most extreme, that would be true if someone had died and you'd never been reconciled. And yet, even in those extreme cases, there is something that we can do. And we can bring that broken relationship that we can't have any part anymore in mending or fixing. And we can bring it to God in prayer. Where we can talk to him and maybe bring others with us in prayer. And we can bring that hurt to him. And while the specific relationship might never be restored, God can move us to a place of healing where the anger and the pain of that brokenness no longer consumes us. Even in the face of the worst kind of wickedness and brokenness, we need never face those trials alone. And so this passage from Matthew ends with Jesus reminding us that when two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there among them. We can ask Jesus to help us in this difficult task. We can ask him to give us the power and the love that he provides through his spirit so that we can be a people who pursue reconciliation. Well, let me, let me finish with a question. How are you going to put this teaching into practice? Whose face has come into your mind uh, this morning as I've been speaking? If there's someone that you need to go to, don't put it off. Don't put it off anymore. Relationships are too important. Take action today. Make the phone call. Arrange to see the person. Talk with them. And if you've already done that and it didn't work, then ask a couple of trusted Christian friends to come with you and to help you. Don't just leave it. As we come in a moment to gather around the Lord's table, we will be reminded of how far Jesus was willing to go to fix our broken relationship with God. Even though the breakdown between us and God was entirely our fault, he did not wait for us to go to him. He took that costly first step toward us, leaving the glory of heaven and sacrificing his life on the cross so that we might be reconciled to God. Thanks be to God. May you find grace and help to follow Jesus' teaching this day. Amen.